This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening. Um, my Part of my talk is uh, entitled Research Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Anti-Racism uh, with the acronym IDEA, I-D-E-A, Problems, Projects, and Proposals. You may be familiar with the acronym DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And if we can get full DEI wherever we live and work, that would be great. Uh, as a researcher, though, I can't solve a problem until I've named it and describe it fully. So both I and I believe Dr. McLemore agree that we need to introduce the element of anti-racism, which calls out explicitly the underlying issues and structures that often resist DEI efforts. Just a quick outline of my talk. I'm just going to talk about the problems and the projects, and, and Dr. McLemore is going to give us some proposals. So uh, this has been a course on systemic in, uh, inequities in health, and I hope that you've heard some of this before, but I just want to lay out the problem as I see it. Um, I think we all agree that uh, better health outcomes should be what we all are aiming for. Uh, and really, in this country, uh, we have a problem with health and health care. Uh, in Comparing ourselves to other equivalent countries in terms of economic development, we are number 11 out of 11 on most metrics of health outcomes. Uh, we are uh, last in healthcare system ranking, generally speaking, worse in access, worse in equity and outcomes. And then to add insult to injury, we're paying twice as much as the nearest similar country for these sort of uh, suboptimal results. Uh, healthcare cost already, though, is 18% of our gross domestic product. So the, the argument that somehow if we can just throw more money at it, things will be better, doesn't seem to work too well. Um, and in general, uh, we have me measurements of healthcare delivery that are um, uh, sort of really not really contributing as much to healthcare outcomes as we would like. Another issue. Uh, I'm sure some of you already know, is that we have significant problems with the low number of racial and ethnic minorities enrolled in our health research projects. A lack of diversity in participants makes studies less generalizable. And because um, the, the lessons that we learn from our studies uh, may not apply to some of our populations can worsen health disparities. So here's an, just an example from a, a relatively new field uh, of genomics research. Uh, because of lack of diversity of participants, most of what we know in geno from genomics research are known for those with European ancestry. This is 96% of the people, the samples studied uh, in genomics as of 20, 2009 were from European ancestry participants. And in 2016, things got better, but still only 19% uh, were from those who are non-European ancestry. And of those, most of that comes from people with Asian ancestry. So certainly, uh, people uh, of African-American uh, and other uh, ethnicity group uh, are, are less represented in these studies. And then um, in terms of our National Institutes of Health uh, funding, um, less than 2% of all of our National Cancer Institute studies uh, meet uh, their recruitment goals for minorities. Uh, and similar issues exist for other health conditions. So. Another issue has to do with diversity in academic medicine, which is, of course, the area where many health researchers work. So in an increasingly diverse population, 
Diversity among researchers is crucial for innovative, relevant, and impactful science. Uh, in 2018, out of over 38,000 tenure professors in medical schools, only 4.5% were from underrepresented populations, and you can see the numbers there. Uh, and certainly at UCSF, we have uh, similar issues uh, with underrepresentation of all the underrepresented group, um, African American and Latinx in particular, uh, across the board, not just at the research faculty level, but also at uh, research assistant and coordinators, uh, postdocs, and so on. And then sort of the last issue, last problem that I want to talk about, which again, I, I hope that you already recognize, uh, is health equity in health or lack of equity in health, health disparities. Um, there are certainly many health disparities that you and I can talk about. Uh, one of the most blatant is this huge disparity in life expectancy between black Americans compared to white Americans. So you can see, generally speaking, that uh, black women and black men live about five years less uh, than white women and white men. And this was pre-pandemic, and I think the gap has gotten worse since then. Here's another way to look at health disparities. Uh, this is healthcare disparities. So um, this is, uh, without getting into too much detail, this is a graph for women and men, uh, and the columns for Asian Pacific Islander, black, Hispanic, compared to white. And if it's blue, they, this particular group does worse on that measure. They basically, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid collected uh, 24 clinical care measures. So that's, for example, something like, do you have a, uh, adequately controlled diabetes, for example? Uh, and and they, they looked at how each of these groups compared to white. And it's just, you know, as you can see here with all the blues, that um, there is a lot of healthcare disparities. So we're going to talk a little bit about some pilot project that we try here at UCSF to address uh, some of these issues. Uh, we know that San Francisco and UCSF has always been at the forefront of health disparities and health equity research. And importantly, we have always challenged orthodoxy in academic medicine. And by we, I don't mean just only our researchers, but our communities, our patients, and our students. So this here is a picture of a die-in uh, in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic during the International AIDS Conference in 1990. Actually, the San Francisco Public Library just had a recent exhibit on this very uh, conference. Uh, and this was the beginning of the organized efforts by patients and communities to participate fully in health research uh, I, I call it the first breaching of the academic medicine walls. Uh, in 2015, this is a die-in by our UCSF medical students and others uh, after the Michael Brown murder in Ferguson in 2015 that brought home even more so the questions of what are we doing uh, with the structures that promote uh, the bad health outcomes that we, we observe, the bad social outcomes that we're seeing. And out of the social changes from, from 2015 and our students' activism, the USCSF School of Medicine created a Differences Matter initiative to address DEI issue. So uh, from 2015 to 2020, which is the first phase of Differences Matter, I just found out that we're going to have a second phase starting uh, that, that's going to be announced in the end of this month. Um, we know that the Chancellor Hoggood uh, sees equity inclusion as one of the top four priority areas for the entire campus. Uh, and Differences Matter is the School of Medicine, uh, Dean's uh, Talmadge King's plans for DEI from those five-year period. And there were six focus area, leadership, uh, climate and recruitment, learning environment, clinical health equity, research action, action group for equity, and pathways outreach and pipeline. 
And actually, the leaders of some of these initiatives, actually, I've seen that they've given talks in this class already, like Dr. Malcolm John, for example. I want to focus mostly on the research group, um, and we call it the Research Action Group for Equity, uh, or RAGE. Um, it was led by uh, myself, Dr. Gross, who is a basic scientist, and Dr. Carrasco, um, at, the, at that time res representing the staff. Uh, and we were working with a lot of different organizations uh, within the UCSF um, world, uh, and more than just what is listed here. And our charge was to increase the diversity of UCSF scientific workforce and research participants, addressing some of the problems at UCSF that we I showed uh, uh, across the United States earlier. I want to focus on four uh, key projects. Um, and. Two of them address issues around diversity among researchers. Uh, one, look at diversity and inclusion for research participants. And then one looking specifically at system and structural changes. So the first one that I'll talk about is the Clinical Research Coordinators Learners for Equity uh, project called CIRCLE. Clinical Research Coordinators, or CRCs, are people who work in research to recruit and retain participants and to administer the study protocols and activities. And diversity among CRCs are really important for many different reasons, two of which are that one, diverse CRCs can help to recruit more diverse study participants, which we think is important, and two, CRC jobs are reasonably well-paying ones for underrepresented people. The CIRCLE program is a collaboration through the SF BUILD program between UCSF and San Francisco State University where there are thousands of underrepresented minority students in the sciences and health disciplines. The San Francisco students uh, who are usually either uh, seniors or uh, postgraduate are selected to this program. And when they are selected to this program, they undergo a two-week summer training where they are paid for the training. Uh, during that time, they learn uh, how research uh, is done, uh, how to recruit people, how to retain people in studies, and other sort of things that are necessary for the CRC job, like figuring out uh, what the review, additional review board, which are basically uh, you know, people who, uh, the group that protect uh, human participants in research, um, all those rules and regulations, gaining certification. We also not just teach them the job skills, but also the job application skills, how to build a resume, uh, doing mock interviews, and speaking with uh, uh, potential um, um, managers. Then we, after the sort of the, the, the sort of uh, class learning, we also have them do 20, 20 hours of shadowing of CRCs who are working uh, and, and serving as their mentor. And then during that time, the program also work with the hiring side uh, to figure out how best to optimize uh, both these students' uh, uh, applications, but also to how to flag them so that the, the hirings I know that these are highly, you know, highly trained people coming to them. I will say, you know, one of the uh, pathway for the CRC job at UCSF is that students who graduate from elite institution, maybe Ivy League or others, uh, would come to UCSF to work at a CRC for a couple of years uh, and then go on to graduate school or um, uh, medical school or, or other professional schools. Um, that kind, that pathway tends to bring people who are what I consider have high social network and high social capital, people have, who knows how to apply to San Francisco from the East Coast, um, people who know that these kinds of good jobs that are, can also lead to 
uh, better training opportunities later. Uh, and many minority students, uh, particularly those uh, from poorer communities or uh, uh, have less sort of family uh, knowledge of how the system works, uh, don't have those opportunities. And so they don't apply for these jobs even. And when they do apply for these jobs, they are sometimes thought of as, quote unquote, less than because they don't come from an elite institution. So this is one of those structural issues that makes our workforce, that they're diversifying our workforce so difficult. And so what we try to do in this program is to actually give people the skill so that when someone is being interviewed or looked at the application, we're not looking necessarily from which elite institution or which institution they came from, which is, of course, fraught with all kinds of historical and, and sort of uh, familial and all kinds of uh, uh, issues. Um, but it really looks at, are these people prepared to do this job? So for the first cohort of 10 scholars, which happened in the summer of 2020, this was all by uh, virtual, obviously, during the pandemic. Um, uh, by December, so they did this in August, and by December, they were just finishing up their, um, uh, their shadowing experience. Uh, they were already applying for jobs. And within, I think, a couple of months of the program ending, seven out of the 10 scholars already got a job at UCSF. Um, and nine out of 10 of them plan on to apply, apply to graduate and professional school. This is another sort of the advantage of the CRC program is we think that some students uh, are ready to go to graduate school or professional school right off the bat. Uh, many others, particularly those coming from poorer families, need to work and make some money, which this is a good job because they work and make some money. And at the same time, it motivates them. It gives them role models for graduate schools. Uh, and of course, the skill set and sort of the the leverage for them when they apply. Others may not never want to go to professional or graduate school, and that's just fine. This is the job that they can grow in and uh, do good good things in. Uh, the second cohort it started this past summer, and now they're in the shadowing part of the training. Uh, and the news has been pretty good too. Uh, I don't have the numbers yet. Uh, but this year, we did something a little bit, uh, we expanded the program because of the success of the first year. Uh, and uh, we expanded the program to include uh, two, two, two other groups of people besides San Francisco State students. We included community members through our partnership with some community organizations here, Rafiki, Cotendaloyne, and the Y, uh, and also some other UCSF employees who were hired either short-term or part-time, but who were looking for ways to develop their career, and they came into this program. And this is part of our Anchor Institution initiative. And so what is an Anchor Institution? An Anchor Institution are place-based, mission-driven entities like UCSF, hospitals, university, government agencies that actually chooses to leverage their economic power alongside their human intellectual resources to improve the long-term health and social welfare of their communities. In short, you know, since UCSF is, I think, either the number one or number two employer uh, in, in the city and county of San Francisco, the jobs here can certainly make a huge difference in the economic lives uh, of uh, all people in San Francisco, but certainly uh, poor minorities in San Francisco. And um, in, in, in doing so, um, uh, the idea is that uh, we also improve their health because it's all we all know, poverty and other socioeconomic determinants of health uh, adversely impact them. Next project that I will talk about is called 
Justice. Uh, I don't even remember the name uh, of this acronym, but it's joining URM, Underrepresented Minority Students and Trainees with Investigators in Collaborations and Education. So what is the goal of justice? So uh, this is a little bit, of, I have to explain a little bit about how research funding works. Uh, the National Institute of Health funds researchers and UCSF gets a lot of them. Um, we are always a top two or three in recipient of NIH funding. Uh, once you get an NIH grant uh, or many uh, many NIH grants that you get fall into this category where you are eligible for what they call a diversity supplement. And this is the NIH's effort to bring more underrepresented minority trainees into the research uh, environment. And they can go anywhere from high school students all the way to being a junior faculty. So what, what that means is that if you have an already funded project, you can apply for more money to pay for minor, underrepresented minority trainees to work on your project uh, so that your project hopefully will get better and they will, of course, get better some money and also some additional training and some, some sort of uh, cachet uh, associating with an IHF-funded project. So what we wanted to do with this program, Justice, is to increase the number of diversity supplement funded at UCSF and then to leverage the possibility of funding to generate new mentor-mentee relationships between UCSF researcher and URM trainees. So both. We want to increase the actual number because that, of course, means more, more people being trained and more um, money being brought in. But also, a lot of times, maybe what's happening, again, thinking about social capital and social network, I've had you know situations where people I know who are well-to-do or well-educated would refer uh, college graduates to me and say, can they work in your lab? Well, those kinds of social network tend to bring in people who are like that, like people who are well-to-do or have gone to elite institutions and so on and so forth. Whereas underrepresented minority students who are poor and who are maybe made their first in generation their family to go to college don't have those kinds of connections. And so they never meet the mentor. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do here is to generate impetus so that uh, more of these people can meet each other. Uh, my, my, our fundamental belief is that we have such wonderful uh, minority students that once the mentors meet them, they'll fall in love with them and will do whatever they can to get them into their laps. Um, so uh, how did we do this? So basically we created a website uh, th with the help of the UCSF Research Development Office uh, and Clinical and Traditional Sciences Institute to help all people who are thinking about applying for one with all the resources necessary. So uh, what is it about? How to figure out who can apply? And then a bunch of, you know, this is a very classic researcher thing. We like to have a library of proposals that were successful so that we can look at them and sort of figure out, you know, how can we uh, uh, use, utilize those to help us do a better proposal. This is a very uh, typical UCSF thing to do. Uh, and then we also know that, you know, sometimes, you know, things go well and you get a diversity supplement, but then uh, you know, regulations and rules from the human resources side sometimes can really slow everything down. And these funding is only about one to two years at most. And so we need to get people in. So we wanted to work on those processes. And then, of course, in order for this to really work, we got to make sure to do a lot of different kinds of outreach to increase awareness. At UCSF, any one particular year, about 400 different grants are eligible for this process. Uh, and, and before we started this work, you know, we were lucky to get five or ten a year. Uh, so the fun, most fun part of this is the, what we call the matchmaking event and database. So basically what that is is just basically we, we get a bunch of uh, faculty researchers and a bunch of URM students and trainees uh, and put them together. Uh, and basically what we do is we have them do short interviews uh, 
about 10 minutes each between a, a faculty and a trainee. And then during one of these sessions, they probably have six to eight such interviews. So uh, in 2020, before this was right before the pandemic, so we did that in person. And then in 2021, because of the pandemic, we did it uh, virtually, obviously. In 2021, we actually had 82 faculty and 72 trainees showed up, which was really, you know, both the numbers are nice, but I was really excited that we had more faculty than trainees, which is saying to us that we're tapping into a potential supply uh, and demand situation that we did not, we're not aware of. Um, we have a matchmaking database, and then those who made a match had the opportunity to apply to a couple of things. One is some internal funding, and the other is the UCSF Post uh, Propel program, which is a brand new post baccalaureate program for retraining researchers. From 2021, I just want to show a little bit of uh, outcomes from this. Uh, from 2021, there were four out of those 82 faculty and 72 students, 41 matches were made. Uh, which was a four times higher than from the year before. So that virtual thing, virtual matchmaking thing didn't seem to do worse than in person. It may be better. Uh, and then 33 of them got into the post-baccalaureate pro uh, program. So that was great. Um, in 2021 so far, uh, we don't take credit for all of this, but there were 47 diversity supplement uh, awarded UCSF for 3.3 million. And then an additional 14 internal awards uh, uh, given from the internal funds by the executive vice chancellor and provost, and we're writing some papers on it. I just wanted to show you sort of a graph. You know, we this is this is not randomized control in the sense that I can't take credit. The justice can't take credit for all of this, but it's fairly persuasive to me that the three years before this program was implemented, there were five to seven minor, a diversity supplement, and then every year since, it's gone up on this curve. And then so the same thing with the money. And so a program like this, which doesn't cost a whole lot of money, has generated a, quite a bit of income, uh, uh, or not income, but quite a bit of grant funding for UCSF. And so, again, you know, sometimes we hear the idea that DEI work is somehow something that is kind of lost leader. You have to invest in it, uh, but you don't get thing out of it. I, I actually disagree strongly. You can get more grants, you can get better science, and all kinds of things when you invest in um, uh, more diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, just in case any of you were interested, uh, the next one is January 19, 2022. And uh, it's a very easy website to remember, justed.ucsf.edu. I'm going to move over to diversity and inclusion for research participants. Uh, and just highlight a new project that we're starting uh, called the Integrating Special Populations Core. So at UCSF, a lot of research uh, is conducted through the infrastructure provided by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute, or CTSI. Uh, and so, for example, the technology that we need to use to recruit people, the institutional review boards, all are sort of worked uh, through the CTSI and the Office of Research. Um, the NIH defines special populations as, and this is a pretty interesting definition, Geriatric, so anyone over 65, pediatric, anyone under 18, and any racial and ethnic minority group. They call this a special population, I think because for many, many decades now, the main population for NIH research has been the one that's not included here, which is white, non-Hispanic white age 19 to 64. That, that's who is usually overrepresented in our research projects. These are the populations that are not represented. The NIH has prioritized this because they want more of these people to be involved in research projects. 
I sort of did a quick calculation of the California population and found out that this quote unquote special population is two thirds of the California population at least. So uh, if you don't want to flip your mind around that, basically all of our, most of our research to date has been done with one third of our population and the other two thirds have been excluded or not excluded, but have been very underrepresented. So this new core, which I helped to lead along with Dr. McLemore, uh, our objectives is to increase involvement, recruitment, and retention of special populations in clinical and translational research, basically research that has to do with human beings, uh, and then to train researchers to integrate the special population in their work. And a couple of general principles that we use here, though, we, we use the principle of uh, community and stakeholder engagement, that we didn't believe that only the faculty should be running this core, but we also want staff and community leaders in this core. And then we also believe in representation. So, so not just um, uh, any faculty or staff or community leaders, but also one from each of the special population, right? So we have a, a, a Chinese uh, psychologist, uh, Dr. So, uh, who's a great researcher. Uh, we have uh, uh, Dr. Kuvinsky, who does a lot of work with geriatrics. Uh, Dr. McLemore, who does a lot of work with uh, black Americans and so on and so forth, and with the staff and it was the community leaders, same kind of representation. Again, my, our fundamental belief is it's better science, better work when you have that kind of diversity. Um, without getting into too much details, you know, what we're doing is we're doing a lot of meetings to figure out what it is that we need to do in terms of project and also structural changes. We have uh, gonna create a list of community reviewers, different ways of getting feedback from communities onto research project. We're going to help uh, create uh, recruitment materials that is uh, appropriate for the diverse populations uh, and also various different study materials as well. Many of these things are, are sort of uh, obvious barriers to recruiting diverse participants, right? So if, you're, if you don't have documents, if you have document that, that is written at a, a college level graduate language, you're not going to get as many people who haven't graduated high school to participate because they can't understand it. And when people don't understand things, they tend to say no. Um, so you need to think about these things, or Chinese or Spanish or anything else that you want to come up with as an example of ways that we keep uh, diverse people from participating. Um, we also uh, know that it's not just about the materials and, and so on and so forth. We think that um, we need navigation to help people uh, participate. So there might be people who want to participate who can't participate because they have no access, they don't understand, uh, they have questions that are not being answered appropriately. If we have a culturally and linguistically appropriate navigator working with them, perhaps we'll do a better job of recruiting them. And then training is a really important issue because uh, I think some of us have done this work and realized that our researchers, uh, even senior researchers, aren't ready to think about some of these things or can do some of these things. And we don't want to have to retrain them once they become senior researchers uh, all the time. So we want to work with the current trainees also to figure out how to help them understand these concepts and how to implement these concepts. But we wanted a co-learning approach. By that, what we mean is that the trainees learn from patients, community leaders, and other experts, but then the trainees can also teach the co-learners about some of the issues that are you know, that they know about scientifically. And then I'll finish with a systems change project that will lead directly into Dr. McLemore's talk. Uh, and this is ASPIRE, uh, Accelerating Systematic stakeholder, patient, and institutional research engagement. Aspire is funded by an agency called PCORI, a Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which was actually created out of the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, legislation. Um, 
really addressing the issue, uh, this is, of course, 10, 10, 10, 11 years ago, addressing the issue that a lot of our health research isn't appropriate and doesn't take into patient outcomes and patient preferences into account. Uh, and, and I think if any of you as a patient versus a provider, you understand what I'm saying when oftentimes the healthcare seems not directed toward patients uh, and the research is not directed toward what patient wants. Um, and Pecori funded us this project in Aspire. Uh, and the principles of this project is that diverse patient and community engagement is necessary to make health research more impactful and to attain health equity. And then the second thing that's really important is institutional structural changes are needed to improve patient and community engagement in health research at UCSF. Our position is that even when you have the most motivated researchers and the motivated participants, there's still a lot of things going on that make things really difficult. Uh, and as an institution that is committed to health equity and to innovative research, that UCSF ought to take a look at what, what kind of barriers, structural barriers uh, that we have to help make things better. Uh, how did we do this work? For or two years, two and a half years or so, we had an advisory board that we created that included institutional leaders, researchers, patients, and community leaders. We did some needs assessment surveys and focus groups. Uh, we, we mapped the assets. What did we have? The institution that was good for this. Uh, and then we had two uh, community-wide uh, symposia um, to collect more uh, input. So we didn't come into this process saying that we knew what we had to do. We came into this process using basically a stakeholder engaged method where we find all the people for whom this should be important uh, and for whom uh, who have a lot of knowledge about how this is working or not working and then try to get their input into what is it that we should be doing as an institution. Um, our first symposium was 2019, pre-pandemic, so that was in person. Uh, we had over 100 participants, about a, a third were community and, and patients. Uh, and we basically presented some information, presented our needs assessment, and then had, really the key thing was to have the breakout session for all the attendees, uh, like here, to come up with a set of recommendations to give the UCS institutional leaders. And at the end of the meeting, they actually presented to UCS institutional leaders. So bypassing people like me, uh, in my opinions, but really going directly from the stakeholder to the decision makers. In 2020, we had to uh, pivot because of the pandemic. Uh, we focus a lot more on COVID uh, and the racism epidemic that was uh, has been going on for a long time. Uh, and we were able to get some money to get a what we call an Institutional Patient and Community Advisory Board, or PCAP, for COVID research. What we saw happening at UCSF was the funding cycle for COVID research was going so fast. Basically, they were issuing uh, requests for grants and then uh, funding it within like a three-month period. What that means when you do that is that you the people who are most ready to do that uh, are people who have been getting funding, number one. And number two, they don't have time to go get stakeholder input. And so you get grants funded that are not driven by input from community, from patients, or anything like that. So what we wanted to do was to help those researchers do better by providing them access to this uh, board, which I think was about 25 people from the communities, uh, diverse communities of San Francisco. And um, they provided uh, advice to 25 research teams. Uh, and the symposia that year, uh, last year, was um, virtual. Um, yet we also had over 100 attendees, about one third. Uh, and then we also had breakout groups generate recommendations. And I'm not going over the recommendation because some of that is actually captured in um, in Dr. McLemore's presentation. But I'll finish, uh, I have, this is my next to last slide, uh, on the Aspire impact and outcomes. 
The idea is that we are research institutions, and we want to approach data collection systematically. So this work was systematically collecting stakeholder input on our structures and processes. And then we facilitated the process of delivering those input and recommendation directly to institutional leaders. Uh, sometimes this work is done a different way, which is we collect information, we write research papers, we publish research papers, and the researchers then go talk to institutional leaders, which I think is just not, that's a too long of a time frame. And number two, it's not really the way that the messages should be being delivered and the people from whom the messages were being delivered. Uh, we did increase some stakeholder engagement in research projects. We did have this advisory board, which I thought was um, a very useful, and all the people who use it thought it was very useful. And a lot of these recommendations are going to be uh, incorporated into various different mechanisms. And we also catalyze um, uh, funding for other sort of diverse uh, initiatives at UCSF. Uh, and then, of course, the Office of Research Task Force, which Dr. McNamara will talk about. So in conclusion, uh, our healthcare system produces inadequate and inequitable health outcomes. Uh, inclusive, diverse, and equitable research teams are needed to generate science that will benefit all, not just some. Uh, patient and community engagement are necessary for research with the greatest impact on health and health equity. And we know that structural changes are needed in the research enterprise of the United States. Uh, and the promising pilot projects I hope I've shown you show that structural changes are possible at UCSF. Thank you. Well, as always, Tung, thank you so much. I am just so grateful to be a partner in this work. And thank you for everyone for being on the Zoom and for being with us to hear about the incredible work that we've been trying to do at UCSF to move our institution to a, a more anti-racism and research uh, enterprise and to really think through strategically what it means to actually leverage uh, the power the uh, access to resources, the humans, the money, the time and the space to really be able to think about our role in, in moving towards health equity and justice. So I'm hoping you all can see my screen. Um, and I am uh, Macklemore MR anywhere and everywhere. And so I hope that you all know that you have my affirmative consent for social media, for our slides, for our recommendations to spread the incredible work that, that Dr. Nguyen and, and the entire team have put forward. And so I'm going to show you a couple of slides building on the incredible foundation that the Aspire team, that the Differences Matter team, that the Sphere team, that the ISP team have put forward that I think is super important and really, really ripe for this current moment. I do want to dedicate my portion of this talk to the, the uh, anti-racism task force members. There are, are several of you on the call, um, and I'm just so grateful for you being here, for your support and for your wisdom, for your shout out, for your tweets, and for your, your amplification of this really important work. So you have my affirmative consent to be able to use my words, to use our images, because we are trying to get the biggest spread that we can in a community-engaged way to really get this work out and to really, really get folks to understand how important this pivotal shift that we are trying to make as an institution is to move to become a more anti-racist in research uh, organization that I think is super important. I have to give a shout out to our group of five, our gang of five, whatever you want to call them, but Malcolm John and School of Medicine has already been mentioned and tongue. Jason Sallow, who is a basic scientist here at UCSF, which, you know, his, his wisdom and insight has been, you know, just transformative for so many of us here. And then the, you know, elder leadership of Dr. George Taylor, who has just been at UCSF and has done a ton of work. 
Uh, we really had some guiding principles to do our work. We thought the community engagement and community involvement were essential to creating an anti-racism task force that would advise the ODO, the Office of D Development and Outreach, and, and the Office of Diversity and Outreach, excuse me, um, to really be able to understand where we as an institution were going. We wanted to have faculty, students, staff participation. We wanted to have compensation for anti-racism related work. And we really wanted to reduce what's called the minority tax. And that is, you know, checking off boxes and multiple meetings and doing tons of work and not getting any credit for it. We really want to name that and disrupt it because we think it's super important. So what is the UCSF Office of, of <laughs> you know, research, the Task Force on Equity and Anti-Racism and Research? Well, we were chartered by the Executive uh, Vice Chancellor and Provost, Dr. Dan Lowenstein, and we really needed to come up with some recommendations that were important for our entire university to implement with a specific focus on anti-Black racism. And at the time we were chartered, this was after the murder of George Floyd. This was after so many unarmed Black Americans had been, been murdered by police in the state and state violence. And we really, really wanted to be able to, to do something that was impactful, leveraging and amplifying the work of, of, of our university, a public university that's been trusted by the tax dollars of the state to really be able to not only educate the future workforce, but to conduct the research and the science that's necessary to improve health outcomes for all populations that we serve. We were very intentional in wanting to amplify and not compete and not replicate. We wanted to endorse. And so you've already heard that uh, our work was planned intentionally around differences matter and aspire and sphere and to really amplify other efforts that were going on on the campus. You will hear about our Department of Humanities and the repair project. You will see the precision medicine work embedded in our work. We included the grad division, like our learners are so important, um, as well as, you know, Odio, who's been shouted out earlier today and who's hosting this event with the Osher Center for the mini, mini medical school as well as our anchor institution status. We didn't want to compete. We wanted to amplify. We wanted to endorse. We wanted to really, really be well aligned with what the work that was already being done. Our task force, we were very intentional about having majority Black, Indigenous, people of color, learners, intergenerational students, staff, faculty, because we really believe this is the way forward. And these are some of our members. Some of our members are on this call. Uh, they have been our strategic partners in all of this work, and I can't tell you how deeply grateful I have been for their leadership, for their brilliance, for their intelligence, for their ideas, for their suggestions, and it has just been such a journey that we've begun it, and I'm so glad that we're really still on it. So what do we do? Well, I have to say we had bi-weekly meetings every other week and agendas, and recommendations, and community comment, and public comment. It was so important for this work to be so deeply embedded in community engagement methods that really provide the authenticity and the transparency that are necessary. If you're going to try and do anti-racism work, let me tell you something. It is lifelong work, and it is work that you have to do in accountability with people that you trust, with people who you may not agree with, with people who have great ideas, with people who all have a shared vision about the future. And that's why it felt so important to get this right and to do this in a way that was so, so, so embedded in other issues that were going on in campus, other initiatives that were going on in campus. 
Uh, we had seven subgroups. They identified different themes. I'm going to show you our recommendations by themes. I'm not going to go through them point by point. You will have those as part of the handouts uh, for registering and being a part of this issue. But I do want to get at some of the very top line things that we got to. You have to know we felt it was very important for community engagement. We needed a public comment period that people who either seek services from UCSF, people who receive services, people who work at UCSF, we needed to have an anonymous way to get public comments back on the 161 recommendations that we generated to really think about how to move our institution towards a more anti-racist racism, excuse me, or an anti-racist institution in research. Um, we, we thought it was really important that we not be in an ivory tower alone, isolated, that anyone and everyone who are who's touched by UCSF could actually like tell us if we were on point or if we were off kilter and if we needed to pivot in terms of our recommendations. So we had a 10-day open comment period, anyone, anywhere. We sent out to listservs and to committee partners, to the public, to our, you know, like research staff, every, anyone and everyone could comment. Flattening hierarchy. So what did we come up with? This is a, a brief schematic of what the time, what our timeline was. It was very rapid. I mean, December to 2020 to June 2021, everybody can do the math on that. It was less than seven months to really be able to put out some grants, to have some anti-racism work, to really meet every other week, to have subgroup meetings, to really make recommendations to the public, and then to get back to UCSF leadership to say how we really felt that we could move our organization, our research enterprise towards anti-racist principles defined by, you know, nationally and internationally recognized scholars like, you know, Ibram Kendi and, and like Kamara Jones, our current presidential chair. How could we really move our organization in ways that we all, I think, have really wanted to see us move towards really, really creating the research infrastructure that's necessary to be able to move health outcomes, but also to eliminate racism, both in research and in our scientific enterprise. We had big goals. We wanted to have a statement from our Office of Research. And then Dr. Lindsay Criswell did that before she left to go to NIH. Um, we wanted to establish a task force to be able to do this work in tandem and in parallel with the anti-racism initiative that was being led by Dr. Navarro, who's on this call, as well as the ODO. We wanted to create a grant funding mechanism, pilot grants. How do we even start to think about measuring this? How do we think about studying this? What definitions do you use? How can we get money in the hands of, of experts who already use anti-racism methods in their research? How can we really put our institutional seriousness and commitment behind our statements and really wanting to transform our research enterprise? And then we really wanted to create recommendations that were actionable, keyword actionable, that we could really do something to leverage our human money, space, and time resources towards anti-racism efforts in research. So what did we find? There are four categories. I will read the category and give you some examples. Accountability. We wanted to establish accountability systems for ongoing implementation and sustained progress on anti-racism and equity strategic goals for UCSF research. This includes everything from creating an associate vice chancellor position building on, you know, tongue's acronym of IDEA, right? It's not just diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also anti-racism if you change the acronym around. I love the IDEA acronym, 
but having a vice chancellor that will continue to lead the work of the anti-racism task force, but making that task force permanent with faculty and students and staff and learners. Creating key metrics with dashboards and really thinking about continuing to have a black health center of excellence or thinking about lay summary for every grant that we have on campus so that we can easily send it out to community members so they can tell us if the science that we are trying to generate is aligned with anti-racist principles as they understand it. There were so many recommendations under this actual main frame. Uh, too many here to list, but they will be in your packet and your available uh, documents from, from the seminar. The second overarching theme of all of the recommendations we had was to promote and support UCSF anti-racism scholarship. That's what we do well. That's our bread and butter. We are a research institution. We are a clinical healthcare providing institution. We are an institution of learning and education. But to really be able to understand and uproot racial hierarchies and the consequences in science, we could lead the nation on this. And so our recommendations were really grounded in how do we grow and sustain funding mechanisms to fund anti-racist research? How do we leverage, leverage our Clinical Translation and Science Institute, as, as Dr. Nguyen has pointed out, our consult services? How can we change our requests for proposals or the actual language that we use in grants using clear definitions of race and racism? using standardized language so that we're not perpetuating harm? How do we create a potential comms office or a comms officer to really highlight and lift up anti-racism research that we're doing at UCSF? We could lead in this right now if we wanted to really talk directly to the public and the press. Maybe we could create a chancellor's award similar to what we have for Martin Luther King or for, or for health equity. Maybe we could have a chancellor's award around the idea in anti-racism. We could continue to support our colleagues in the humanities and social and behavioral sciences, but we have internationally recognized expertise in anti-racism methods. And can we work with our own institutional review boards and ethics committees to really, really understand how to spot how racism in science shows up as well as research and really be able to create some guidelines some principles some practices and some standards to be able to disrupt that and lead the country in that work. I think we can do it. I know we can. We've done it in other domains and we can definitely do it here. In our third pillar, diversification of the UCSF research workforce. And you notice that we didn't say faculty here, we said to create and support more diverse academic, non-academic faculty researchers, trainees, and staff. We really believe that it's so important to really focus and to retain Black and historically excluded faculty, but also staff that we could build, we have the skills and the tools to build paths to historically Black colleges and universities, HBCUs. We have the skills for Hispanic serving institutions. We have the skills to build, I mean, you heard about SF build with San Francisco State and the CSUs. We have pipeline capacity to build with community colleges. We can do this. We just have to align our efforts towards, you know, an intentionality towards anti-racism. The last pillar, I really want to connect the dots here because I don't think a lot of people understand the relationship between community-engaged research and anti-racism work. And I'm going to lay this out really clearly for individuals, for folks who don't get this. 
And that is the mechanism towards health equity lies in community-engaged research for a couple of different reasons. Number one, when you think about leveraging our procurement, our status as a land-grant institution, as well as an anchor organization, we can scale in ways that other institutions cannot, right? I mean, I find it really fascinating that private institutions have made news headlines in you know, New York Times and Washington Post because they've been able to have transfer students from other schools and they admitted 17 people. But using the power of the 10 campus UCs, we can already do things at scale around procurement, around anti-racism in research. We can think about a university-wide living wage. We've talked about this, this is one of the recommendations, not only for community members and for our faculty, students, and staff, but we can really set a new standard around how do we think about making sure that the infrastructure of humans and money and time and space are leveraged in ways that we can do not only at our own institution, but spread throughout our, our 10 campus system. We can think about faculty designations for community members and community research partners, really having a seriousness of our commitment to saying you are part of our family, you are part of our research enterprise, and therefore we want to be able to make sure that you are acknowledged in the same way that other faculty members are or that other staff are within our institution. And then there's the accountability piece, right? I mean, without community input, I think Tung has made this point very clear, but I really want to connect the dots that the science that we generate, that the data that we are able to collect, that the reporting and the dissemination not only gets at misinformation and mistrust, but it also really recognizes our authentic commitment to the geographies in which we work, live, pray, play, thrive, and try to educate the public uh, given our mission. So given these four big tenets and reminder, there are 161 recommendations <laughs> under those four tenets. And then the slides you will receive from me today, you're only going to receive probably about a third of what those recommendations are. But our next steps are we are creating a final report. In fact, we have a draft of it. There is an executive summary that is 10 pages long that we presented to fact campus leadership. And we've received some commitments to move forward on many of these recommendations. And it makes me very excited to know that we have institutional commitments to be able to move this work forward. That said, the full report will not only have the executive summary, but will have it will have all 161 recommendations with the themes in which they are embedded, as well as all of the community recommendations, as well as the incredible ideas we got from the public to really think about institutional transformation at the department, at the school, at the whole institution level in terms of our research. We are providing these documents to Dr. Navarro and Dr. Rincon to align with their broader campus initiative around anti-racism work. And we are happy to report that the task force work is going to continue under our new associate vice chancellor, you know, for, you know, idea, you know, again, you know, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism research under that new leadership position. And I am very excited to be able to support whoever that person is.
So with that, we are lucky that we've been able to use the, the original artwork from our muralist. You know, if you know the mission, you know this mural. Uh, we've we've allowed, been allowed and contracted for and paid for these this beautiful imagery. And we are continuing to use, you know, community engagement principles to bring forward this report. We look forward to providing it not only to the entire UCSF campus, but also to the community partners who helped us to generate and to rank and to figure out how we can move our institution over time to become a more anti-racist institution in terms of the science that we generate, as well as the research that we conduct. So with that, I, I see that there are some comments in the chat. I know we have some q and I'm gonna turn it back to back over, excuse me, to uh, Dr. Rincon uh, so that we can maybe have some dialogue about what we've presented to you today. Thank you so much for having us and I look forward to the, the conversation. This initial question, it, it's multifaceted and we again appreciate our colleagues for posing these questions. This is a bit about the relationship between uh, faculty and students. So let me see. Uh, and so it begins with a reference to Differences Matters. Uh, the initiative in the School of Medicine um, encompassing you know, diversity efforts uh, launched in 2015 and lasting until 2020. Do you feel that the die-in was impactful in starting a push within the institution? Were students able to align with faculty who had already been standing in the gap for decades, or was there a generational gap? How were you able to, or were you able to overcome that? How much of a generational gap is also about staying safe? For faculty and staff, has the student movement been able to give some additional safety or permission, in quotes, challenge to staff and faculty? So it, it, there's a lot in there, but it's really about that dynamic relationship between faculty and staff. So either one of you um, be happy to take that question. Well, I want to start because I have to say I was one of the faculty who canceled my classes the day that we had the white coats for Black Lives die in. And I remember sitting in Cole Hall um, and it was it was very impactful for me. So for people who don't know, I am a Gen X person. Uh, my parents, um, they have FBI files thicker than mine <laughs> in terms of civil rights. And so for me, the Diane meant a lot. That said, um, I do think as we start to utilize former tools that have been successful for the fight for human rights, that we translate those for newer audiences or for early career investigators. So if I were gonna plan a, a die-in, I would make sure that somebody was broadcasting it live on TikTok. I probably would host something on my Instagram live for the you know net native digital folks. Um, and I would translate that such that if we were going to do those kinds of activities that, that everyone would have an opportunity to participate regardless of their capacity to show up. Um, I thought the teachings were very, very helpful that followed subsequently. But again, I would make sure that there would be places where people could plug in either virtually or using virtual reality or other kind of technological tools that, that net native people currently use to try and keep pushing our institution forward. Did I think that Diane was impactful? We are still sitting here having conversations with some of the most senior leadership of our university, pushing out content to the public about how we are trying to transform our institutions. So I would say, yes, it was a blaring success and that the incrementalism that's necessary for us to keep pushing the big rock up the hill, it needs to come from multiple different places. 
So with that, I'll pass it to Tom because I know he probably has a lot more to say about this than I do. <laughs> no, okay. you, you, you captured yeah. most of it. I would say, you know, I wasn't in the, I'm not in the leadership, but I can say that what everything I've heard was the die-in and those activities was what trigger uh, the School of Medicine retreat. It was basically, I don't know what they were planning to talk about, but uh, that year's School of Medicine retreat became what the student wanted them to talk about. And, and, you know, for me, there's no greater measure of power than to be able to do that. And then what really the long-term effect, now many that Monica, Dr. McLemore is mentioning, but the one that really was important to me was that they prep, it's kind of used Dr. Kamara Jones, you know, uh, uh, metaphor of a fertile ground, you know, they prepped the ground. And so when people like me walked in with these ideas or, you know, with, with our, our ideas from all the people that we work with, the leadership was ready, you know. And, and so, you know, there's no way to tease out all of this from each other. It's the fact that we are here. We're not where we need to be, but we are farther along than where we were. I think a lot of that was triggered off by our students, and I'm very proud of them. Excellent. Well, thank you both um, so much uh, on behalf of the School of Medicine and the Office of Diversity and Outreach, and thanks to all of our participants. We look forward to our session two weeks from today on Educating for Equity, From Diversity to Anti-Racism and Anti-Oppressive Content in the School of Medicine Curriculum. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.